Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have made a mark in marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes. Sarah Benison is a marketer with almost 30 years of experience. Starting a career as a graduate trainee at JWT in the late 80s, she worked on some of the UK's biggest brands at a number of agencies. She ended her agency career at Grey London in 2007, jumping client-side to BT and then into financial services. First at Barclays, where she was CMO of its personal and corporate bank, then to Nationwide in 2016, where she works today. She's also an active advocate for change. Following the abuse received by several of the stars of Nationwide's Voices campaign, she called on brands to take a stand against social media abuse rather than deleting or ignoring comments. This is just one example of Benison's active engagement in marketing industry matters. As Vice President of ISBAR's Council, member of the Industry Advisory Panel advising the ASA and Board Treasurer of Wackle. She's looking to help bolster the reputation of the UK advertising and marketing industry. Her achievements at Nationwide and dedication to the greater good were the reasons she was recently awarded the Marketer of the Year gong by us at our recent Masters of Marketing Awards. Welcome, Sarah, and congratulations again. Thank you very much. Now, as I've just outlined in my introduction, you have lots on your plate. I mean, what's your motivation for being involved in so many things? It's probably I'm just really bad at saying no, <laughs> says the mother of four children. But I think it's also uh, just this curiosity where different conversations can take you and keeping kind of lots of different ideas, thoughts, perspectives, uh, firing you up and making you better, I think, in your day job. So if I could ask you to think back to the beginning of your career in advertising as it was, what uh, inspired you when you left university to start a career, firstly, in advertising, advertising agencies? So I, I mean, I didn't have a clue at university what I wanted to do. I loved English. I loved storytelling. I didn't even know advertising existed as a business. I certainly didn't know anyone who worked in it. And so it was quite by chance that I did a random essay on something to do with advertising, the language of it. And I just found it fascinating how you could combine storytelling, which was my first love, with business and having a job and making money, which needed to become the love of my adult life. You started in agencies, as we've discussed already. What would you say are the differences between agency landscape as it was in the early years of your career to now? I think it's interesting because in some ways, some things have changed hugely. And this is going to make me sound very old. But I remember, you know, when I started as a graduate trainee, running around, getting people to sign off different bits of copy that you know, changing a word in a press ad would take you forever to do, rather than be the stroke of a moment on a computer. All of that stuff has obviously changed fundamentally. And that's very exciting, because you've got different possibilities, different speed and pace you can work at, different quantity of content that you can produce. I suppose, though, some of the stuff I think that's more interesting is what hasn't really changed and some of the hierarchies and processes actually have changed on agency side far little in 30 years than actually what happens in my client side experience from one year to the next. And what kind of things are you referring to? 
Oh, I think... Some of the the dominance of, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the dominance of the creative voice in the room, I think, is really interesting. Uh, some of the, you know, the timescales that the more traditional agencies work to in terms of, oh, we need the brief here and then we'll go away in a darkened room and it will come back at the end of the process. Some of those things do seem frighteningly similar despite everything that has that has changed around so yeah i think it's i think it's interesting i also think it seems like an awful lot less fun than it was when i started which is a less serious observation maybe but maybe that lack of fun and that increased seriousness just take some of the edge off the ideas that come out of the other end mm. i suppose the definition of fun is open to interpretation <laughs> i mean by legend advertising certainly if mad men is to be believed used to be a world of you know long hours and heavy drinking and other activity. I'm guessing you're not necessarily talking about that, but when you say fun, what, what, what's what's been lost, would you well, say? Well, I do think, I mean, I was sadly at the tail end of the Mad Men era by some, some time, but the era of the long lunch has gone for all of us, hasn't it? And actually the long boozy lunch was sometimes the moment that uh, you got to know your client better. You understood a personal perspective to the teams that you're working with and you had a mad, crazy idea that you know you would never have had in a very formal, rigid, we've got one out, have an idea in a meeting kind of way. And I think some of that is a shame because the amount of process that you can say exists around advertising and science around process, all of that stuff. Yes, that's true. But ultimately, those really big creative leaps do come from having a lateral thought that is out of the box and sometimes out of a meeting or out of an agency setting. Mm. I mean, some would perhaps argue that that's the client's fault, that they're demanding more efficient work as opposed to more effective and bigger creative ideas pushing things down to the bottom of the funnel at the expense of sort of big long-term brand building big creative ideas and canvases what would you say to them I, th- I think that's an absolutely fair accusation i mean i've lived this from both sides of the fence being agency side and justifying fees and trying to work out how you make a living out of it as well as being client side with uh, procurement departments questioning how effective you are at getting the work that you need from um, your agencies and that's where i think it's really important for marketeers to step up and articulate the value of what you're getting and the value is not the hours people work as a team the value is the quality of what comes out the other end and I'm really clear with that in the way that I work with the agencies that I do and that you prioritize the time and the space it takes to have the crazy idea though sadly not through long lunches so much anymore. <laughs> it's often said by well many people that the is a, a disconnect a, a broken relationship between agencies and clients what would be your take on that? I think some agencies and some clients there probably is and there probably always has been. But I think a really important part of my job is to get the best people having their best thoughts on my piece of business. And you have to work on the relationship to make that happen. One of the advantages of of a few years in the business is you make connections, you work with people in different situations over time. And to actually be able to have the kind of honest relationships that come from that is, is really invaluable because that's how you get to fabulous, interesting work, and that's how you add value to your business. Before we move away from the subject of agencies and on to your career client side, you mentioned at the beginning that agencies perhaps haven't changed as much as 
the world of marketing and clients have in, in the time that you've been in the industry. Does that provide opportunities for new entrants, new kids on the block? You know, we hear a lot about the consultancies coming into the space. In any sector, there's opportunity for new businesses. I think the difficulty, and this has always been the case in advertising, advertising is not about agencies. It's about the people that work in agencies. It's about talented individuals who are brought together in a culture that they like. And if anything, advertising agencies, advertising brands are about cultures that attract like-minded individuals and either enable them or not enable them to think interesting thoughts. So there's always room for new. But I think believing that there's some sort of magic formula that's missing or a process that's missing is, is maybe a little dangerous. And I think it's fascinating watching the consultants coming in. Because obviously, in my work client side, as obviously I work with advertising agencies, I also work with big management consultancies. You see the difference very much in the value that they add to your business. And you do want different things from those different brains, those different ways of thinking, those different cultures. And whether that can come together in one place is a a really interesting thing to watch. Looking or returning to your career, when you left Grey London, you moved client side, uh, which is quite a well-worn path for people to move from agencies to clients. What was it that prompted you to do that? I think what the most immediate thing was I was just had my fourth child. I was looking around me and had gone from being on the board by the time you're 30 kind of thing to by the time you're heading towards your 40s thinking I'm the oldest person in the room too embarrassed to dance at the agency disco and I've got to pay school fees for a very, very long time to come. How is this going to work from a career point of view in an agency context? And also I got a bit bored. I think I needed to spread my wings and find other things to do and think about that would work with being a mum. And hopefully it's better for the generation that followed me, but certainly for my generation, being a mum, a good mum and working at a senior level in agencies were not really very compatible things to do. You joined Barclays not long in the scheme of things after joining BT. And then not so long after you joined Barclays, and I'm not pinning the blame on you in any way, shape or form, but the financial world and and indeed the economics of the UK in many ways were turned upside down with the financial crash and the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Now, Barclays weren't necessarily as impacted some of the other big financial firms in the UK, but it must have been an interesting time, a challenging time when the financial services sector, particular banking, was public enemy number one. I mean, how as a marketer did you cope with that? I mean, it was a fascinating time. And actually, the fact that I had absolutely zero experience of the category, I think, was probably the biggest benefit I had. So literally, I arrived, Lehman's collapsed the week after, and you were into the autumn of 2008. And although you you wouldn't wish a global financial crisis on anybody, from a personal perspective and from a marketing perspective, it was a really exciting and interesting time. I think financial services marketing for a very, very long time had been stuck in a world of how can I find a way to write a rate on a poster in a more interesting typeface? Not much more than that. And very much at the end of the food chain in those kind of organisations. And there wasn't really an understanding of brand and there wasn't really an understanding of proposition or customer experience. Those sort of concepts, which were very strong within retail or within FMCG, hadn't really made it as far as financial services. So the advantage of not knowing anything about the category, but being at a time when the category was turned upside down, that nobody could hold that against me. And actually, you were able to bring new thoughts, new perspectives from different markets to bear and do some really interesting work, which actually... 
five, ten years before, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. That's an interesting take and one that I haven't heard before in such a tumultuous environment that actually from a marketing perspective, it allowed you to shine. It brought into the category or the sector in a way that hadn't been before the very concept of building a brand, if I understood you correctly. No, absolutely, because trust is core to what a brand is about. It's what a brand promises. It's what branding says. It says you can trust this. The brand is branded on it. So yes, it did. But I think more broadly, actually, Doing things differently and experimenting and change is always much easier in an organisation or on a project, whatever it may be, when there's something wrong. And I find the hardest time almost as a marketer is when things are going well, because how do you ever persuade someone to try something different? Because the risk becomes higher when you're in a state where you know the world is upside down, all bets are off, all the rules are broken, then you have the opportunity to be at your most creative, I suppose, as a marketer and actually your value for a business and the value that marketing skills and lateral thinking and creative thought, all of that brings become in higher demand. And I think it's quite interesting when you look across then the backgrounds of the CMOs of all the major financial organisations has changed radically in that time from people coming from agency or FMCG or non-financial services backgrounds being virtually non-existent to now being, I think, you know, more the norm than not the majority. And I can see that in the sense that as a marketer, if you are constantly challenged with some pretty trying circumstances and set of circumstances, that would certainly keep you on your mettle. I suppose in financial services generally, you are now faced with the challenge of you know fintech and technology-based new entrants. Is that exciting or daunting? It's really exciting because you can do, yes, there's a competitive challenge that's different. And so that means being really clear about what is it that you can offer that's different and what the power of your brand is that's different. But equally, it's the opportunity that there is to innovate, do something differently. I mean, what open APIs effectively mean is the ability to connect services in ways that were not possible to do pre that happening. And that opens up all manner of interesting possibilities um, to develop the services uh, that we produce. Because I think, again, one of the things that has been difficult is in financial services, you, you know, you do lots of work on insight and segmentation and all those good things. And at the end of it, you kind of go, I really understand this customer, in our case, member at Nationwide, what are we going to provide them? And you go, it's a slightly different kind of savings account was the beginning and end of it. Whereas now there is so much more that starts to be within reach of things that you can do. But equally, there is a point about not just getting seduced by the latest new shiny thing. So working out what you pay attention to and what's fundamentally important and interesting and are genuine trends as opposed to things that you're doing just because you can is a really interesting one. I was really interested what you were saying about, I suppose, testing yourself in a sector that you hadn't worked in before. I've heard others express this opinion that it's actually the best thing to do to actually put yourself in an, an alien environment in many ways. I mean, obviously, you'd experienced financial services as a, as a customer. It allows you or forces you perhaps to go back to the 101 of marketing to find out more about your customer as opposed to base some of your decisions on assumptions. Mm. Is that the kind of thing you were referring to? Yeah, no, I think so. And I, I mean, quite early on in my career, I went and I worked in Thailand for a year and a half. And that was a really similar experience. So I worked for JWT out in oh, Thailand okay. setting up planning for the Unilever Innovation Centre in my kind of mid-20s, so doing things that I wouldn't be doing for another 10, 20 years if I was in 
home territory. And that was really interesting. As someone who did an English degree, loved words and was very word and crafting of words focused, working in a culture where I could order a beer and make sure the food wasn't too hot in Thai, but I couldn't explain the benefits of washing powder very effectively. I couldn't get the nuance. And that meant I had to be much, much clearer and crisper about the core of an idea. I had to think much more visually than was my natural bent. And so I learnt new skills and stretched myself in very different ways um, and very different ways from the ones I expected going to work in a different culture. And again, I think that's that same experience of being a little bit more dispassionate, sort of taking a bit of a step back, not assuming the whole world thinks the way that you do or speaks the way that you do, which is part of the skill. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers and lower costs. Returning to Barclays for a moment, a couple of years after the financial crash, the spotlight was very much on Barclays. Was it a difficult place to work at that time and a difficult decision for you to be working at a bank that had been found to have done something that had impacted lots and lots and lots of people? Mm, I mean, it was a heartbreaking time, but I didn't feel, because I was working in the retail bank at the time, I felt my allegiance was very strongly to the retail bank. And you had loads of people that had worked in there for 20, 30, 40 years, members of staff in branches who were being shouted at, spat at in the street because they were in uniform because of the stories that were on the front page. And you felt, or I certainly felt, a real commitment to telling their story of actually very good, decent people who felt as let down by what happened by a small number of people in a different part of the forest, if you like. So no, I didn't ever feel that contradiction in that sense, because the values of certainly the organisation and the part I worked in were very strongly aligned. But working out what to do when you're in that situation is really hard. And every morning waking up to another horrible headline and thinking, is this ever going to end? How do you see your way beyond that? How do you start rebuilding the brand from that was massively, massively challenging. It's quite surprising, actually. Mm. You joined Nationwide only a few years ago. Nationwide positioned itself in the years following financial crash as the antidote to banks because they weren't a bank was part of the reason you joined nationwide because they were different and they 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 were set up differently and their modus operandi was different to the plc banks or bank that you'd worked for for eight years part of the attraction at the outset was actually at quite a superficial level that you just think as a marketer in certainly in financial services having something genuinely unique to talk about around the brand and the business that you're marketing is actually quite a rare thing and I and I thought that they'd never quite found a way of unlocking that story and doing it justice so there was a sort of intellectual challenge as well as a you know an interesting job opportunity if you like but the more that I've worked there and the more I found out about it before I joined the more the fundamental differences of a mutual versus a PLC model attracted me and interested me to understand what that means, how that influences all the decisions you make and, and what if you ever went back to PLC land, you would learn and take with it from a, a very different construct in a mutual world. I can see in terms of an, an external comms and a positioning that there's a distinct advantage that Nationwide has. But having the model of ownership that it does, does that help with internal marketing in, in creating advocates that are willing 
and I'm very enthusiastic about talking about the virtues of working for Nationwide and the products and services that they offer. Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone is very keenly aware of the difference, very keenly aware of who we're there to serve. So, you know, every organisation says we put the customer at the heart somewhere on a chart. But when you're working somewhere where they that the member owns you, it's their money, it just throws a completely different light on things. And I think also the really fascinating element is when you're working somewhere where the goal is not to increase profit. So you need enough profit. That's really important so that you're safe, secure, well capitalised, can invest in innovation, all of that stuff. But actually, if we turned around and said in our results last week, and we've doubled profit in this half, that would have been a bad answer because it means that you wouldn't have invested enough back in your membership. And that does your head in to start with because you're so used to the answer to every away day problem being, and how are we going to make more money? And it isn't as straightforward as that. It's much more nuanced. It means that you can take decisions that are longer term decisions. But I think the ultimate irony, and this is the thing to really bring back on a number of fronts, actually, is having the license to take longer term decisions means that we are the brand that is performing best in the shortest term measure of current account performance. So we're taking one in five of all switches in the UK. We have done for a long time. And that is the sort of thing on current accounts. That's the way that you can sort of tell most instantly how you're doing. It's the easiest thing for people to move. And I think that's the thing that really leads me to reflect is actually it's a tortoise and a hare job, really, that by taking longer, doing the right thing, not being driven by what's going to make me the most money next week, next month, this quarter, you actually get to a more sustainable position. Bringing it almost up to date, or some of the more recent work that you've done with Nationwide and some of the things that you've talked about recently, you have taken a very strong line, both through a campaign that you did with others and you personally, on clamping down or brands' responsibility to clamp down on online abuse. I mentioned it in my introduction, following some of the horrible comments that were left and and made about some of the people that appeared in your Voices campaign. I'm not going to ask you about that necessarily, but do you think it's important for a brand to take a stand? We hear a lot about purpose. Is it one in the same thing, taking a stand and purpose? Yeah, I think it can be related. I mean, I think I think the difficulty with purpose now is when it becomes a kind of invention, like, oh dear, I've been to marketing school and everyone says I need a purpose, I must go and find one and write it on a PowerPoint. That, I think, is a really bad thing. It's fake and people see through it. And then you get into all kinds of problems where people misstep by thinking, right, we need to, as we've now got this purpose, we need to go and find something to take a stand on. And then you can get yourself into you know, very complex areas. I think for us, again, and this relates back to the mutual point, we have a very clear purpose that's founded in who we are, how we were set up. It's always been true. It's not a kind of invention that I brought to the table. We are a strongly values-led, genuinely values-led organisation at the same time. And sometimes things like the hate speech incident, if you let that ride as much as anything else to your own colleagues, it undermines their belief that this purpose is true and lived in an authentic way every day if you just stand by. So I don't think I don't think you have to. I think sometimes it's very dangerous to think that you need to. But equally, there are moments where if you're in the privileged position to work in a brand that is able to have a voice on a subject that matters to the people that work there and, you know, why why wouldn't you stand up? And that was the only barometer for success when you talked about it personally and Nationwide as a brand was involved in that recent campaign. Or was there ever a consideration in your mind or a discussion that 
actually taking a stand on an issue like this will make us look quite good and might have a nice halo effect. I'm not accusing you of such, I've just wondered. No, actually, and a lot of the things that we've done, we've deliberately not branded it, if you like, or found other brands to collaborate with and do it in a different way so that it wasn't a, this is our thing, you know, in the way that some brands and some issues do that. A lot of it has been behind the scenes relatively little from a public point of view. I mean, there's more awareness of it in a marketing context because it's written about and seen in a different way. But from the perspective of brand impact in any meaningful sense, there's not that much of it that's visible at all. It's just because we felt it was the right thing to stand up for and do something about. And that was enough motivation. And And that's what I mean about being very lucky to work somewhere where, because it's the right thing to do and everyone agrees that, that's good enough. What's your biggest bugbear in modern marketing? What gets your goat when you read it or you hear somebody talking about it or you see it? So I do think the obsession with believing that numbers and short term, which we're beginning to start to come out of, but the amount of budget time effort that's been diverted on the basis that it's got numbers, therefore it must be true. And if I can measure it and if it's giving me a short term return that I can see and that I can definitely attribute, then, you know, the numbers have to be 100% right. What we're learning, of course, is the numbers aren't 100% right in the first place. And just because it's harder to measure the impact of longer term brand building, that doesn't mean it's less effective. In fact, it's more effective. And that's the thing that I do worry about is people swallowing an awful lot of Kool-Aid and believing, you know, if anyone says big data to me again, I think I might actually have to commit some online hatred myself because it's just it's just this belief that that there is nothing other than a set of numbers. I mean, what's driving that? Is it just literally the availability of these billions and billions of data points, which you must have? We do. We do have them in the billions. But what's interesting is finding out, well, what's the pattern? What are the truths behind it? If it's telling you about people's behaviour and insight and not just taking them at face value and believing them and not being seduced into thinking because you can measure what you think you can measure something in the short term, it's true and real and sustainable in terms of its impact. And I think that that is an issue. And then I just get driven crazy by any kind of marketing speak when people are presenting to you and you're going, but what do you actually mean? And they can't then turn that into straightforward language drives me mad too. Are these things more prevalent? You know, the the, the marketing babble, the, the, the buzzwords, the cultural ephemera that seems to be in marketing. I've only been at Marketing Week for 10 years, so I don't have that much frame of reference. But are you seeing a lot more... You know, consensus thinking, a lot more babble, a lot more uh, nonsense around, for want of a better way of putting it. And maybe a little bit less critical thought, which is starting to come through now. And obviously you're seeing people questioning and pushing at and going, but are all these amazing views actually seen by anybody or is it possibly a chatbot? And, you know, all of those kind of things is not just taking things at face value because if things are amazing and too good to be true on the surface, then they usually are just too good to be true and you need to understand beneath it. And, you know, there's loads of fabulous innovation, which I love and ability to do things and see things and understand patterns of behaviour that are endlessly fascinating. And I love seeing that, but I love the numbers for what they tell you about people. And I think we've forgotten that behind every number is a person or an action rather than it being a thing in itself that has to be treated like it's a godlike truth. What would you say is your biggest career achievement today? 
for me, I, th- I think this goes back to your first question about why do I do many so many different things? It's because it's always the next thing. You're always looking at, well, I'm really loving what I'm doing now and I'm really proud of the team and I'm really proud of what we've delivered. But I've always got a bit of an itch to scratch that it's never quite perfect and what would the next thing be? So I suppose my biggest achievement is the next one. That's as good an answer as any. I think a lot of people can learn quite a lot from people in your position You've achieved a lot in their career and, and as you've just said, hopeful of achieving a lot more in the years to come. But people can also learn from what went wrong as well. So if there was something that you regret, something in your career that you have identified that you knew you could do better, what would that be and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I think it's less about kind of things that you produce and more around choices you take about where you work and who you work with. And I think the only times, and regret's a bad word because you might regret it at the time, but in the when you have a little bit of perspective, you always realise that you've learned something very valuable even from the things that were maybe not the ideal things to do. But I suppose the things that I wish I'd understood more earlier was to not make decisions about what the right next move would be or team to be based on what it looked like on paper and what you thought others would think about it and to make those decisions based on are the values that you share aligned with the organisation or the team that you're working with and are you working with somebody who you respect, who you can learn from, whose company you enjoy because I think it's very easy to think on paper this looks like a fabulous move, a real challenge. I can see how it fits a hole in my CV, all of the kind of reasons to do things. And you forget that you have to go to work every day and do a job with a certain number of people in a culture. And I think you where I know that I'm certainly at my best is where I feel values are aligned and I'm working with and for people that I respect and whose company I enjoy. And then I do much better things. And I'm a much happier person. And working out that and having the confidence sometimes as a result to say no to things, which everyone goes, you must be mad. This is a brilliant opportunity to say no and do the things that feel right. I wish I'd done and known that more earlier. Seems like a guiding principle to abide by and for others too as well. Thank you very much, Sarah Benison. Thank you. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you to my guest, Sarah Benison. You have been listening to Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by Something Else, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Laura Hyde. If you like this episode and want to listen to more, we've interviewed the likes of Byron Sharp, Mark Ritson, and Sil Seller, and you can find them all on SoundCloud, iTunes, and marketingweek.com. Next month, we will be joined by Burger King CMO, Fernando Machado. Thanks, and goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. 